0: Well, please turn with me in the scriptures to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, let us hear God's word. To the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that thy way may be known upon earth by saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now this morning we come to consider this psalm, Psalm 67, uh, under the title, Let the People Praise You. To you notice, That refrain there in verses 3 and 5. Let the people praise thee. This is the chorus of this psalm, which is clearly a missionary psalm. What I want us to see in this psalm first is that it's a prayer for the prosperity of the church in verse 1. Secondly, in verses 2 through 5, it's a prayer for the extension... Of the church. First, the prosperity of the church, then its extension. And then in verses 6 and 7, we actually have a prophecy of the extension of the church. So we're to pray first in verse 1 for the spiritual health of the church, for the qualitative growth of the church, then we're to pray for the quantitative growth of the church, its extension, and then God is pleased through the psalmist to encourage us that he will do what he's told us to pray. He will cause the nations to fear him uh, and to worship him. So let's begin our way through this psalm. What I want us to note first here in verse 1, this prayer for the prosperity of the church, is it appears that this prayer of the psalmist is a reflection on his meditation of the Aaronic blessing in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Let me just read that benediction to you, and you will hear it again at the end of the service. And I will read from verse 22 just so that you might be reminded that the benediction that's given at the end of a worship service in the New Testament is something that was directed by God to Moses, for Moses to tell Aaron to do it for the people of God in the Old Testament. It's not just empty words that are said at the benediction of a worship service. Listen, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, And unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord make his face shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. And then notice the last. Words here in verse 27. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will, not may, I will bless them. When we hear the benediction, God has promised that there is a blessing that comes to us as God's people through his word. I believe the psalmist was meditating upon that blessing and he basically praise the benediction uh, in summary. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. So the psalmist writes this psalm. He's going to give it to the chief musician. This, this poem that is going to become a song that the chief musician maintains that the people of God will sing it in their synagogues from then on. And God's people since that time, even in New Testament periods, sing Psalm 67. It's a psalm, but it's also a song, we're told, by the psalmist. But notice, this psalm is not the recording of a personal prayer even though it may be one person praying it, but it doesn't say, God, be merciful to me and bless me and cause your face to shine upon me. It says us, us, us. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer for the people of God. It reminds me of Matthew 6, 9, where we have the Lord giving the apostles that pattern of prayer, the Lord's prayer, our Father, it begins. Our Father. So this prayer is for the people of God. Note first this prayer is first about forgiveness of sin. God be merciful unto us. Children, do you remember what the publican cries in Luke eighteen thirteen? That parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the publican Christ, be merciful unto me, the sinner. Not a sinner, literally the sinner. All he can think about is his own sin. When one comes to Christ, they're not concerned about everybody else's sin. At that point, God's Spirit has worked upon us. That we're only concerned about our own sin and getting right with God. See, in Luke 18, When the publican cries, be merciful unto me, he's in other words saying, forgive me of my sins. And I believe that's what the psalmist is doing here. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. But confession is one part of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised that confession is part of the prayer. A healthy church will be a repenting church. Amen? So we see this prayer of repentance. Be merciful unto us. We're sinful. Us are sinners. We're saints, but we still sin. Be merciful unto us and bless us. In other words, give us all the promises you have promised to your people in the Scripture. Give us those blessings. We're told in Proverbs 10.22 that those the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich... And addeth no sorrow with it. Now please don't be mistaken. Uh, Don't think I'm a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. Uh, This richness here in Proverbs, in the original, is not focusing upon material possessions. But it's focusing upon soul prosperity. That's the prosperity that really counts, isn't it? And see, with many things that are good for us, there's usually some side effects. Right? There's usually a cost-benefit. But see, here with the blessings of the Lord, there's no negative effects. There's no negative side effects. It's all good when God blesses his people. So the prayer is one of confession. It's one of request for blessing, petition, or supplication. First, that we might experience that which God has promised us, and then I believe here in 1C, and cause his face to shine upon us is a prayer for his very presence. This word, shine upon, this word upon in the Hebrew, could actually mean with us. So, shine your face with us, be present with us. Wasn't that a continual prayer of Moses, the type of Christ? as he led the people through the wilderness wanderings. We want God's blessings, but we want him, the ultimate blessing. We need his presence when we're corporately gathered and when we're scattered as the people of God, carrying out his will throughout our lives, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our immediate families, our extended families. So that's the first prayer, a prayer for spiritual health within the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because it the blessing of the world comes through the church. Remember, God promised Abraham in Genesis twelve three that it would be through him, faithful Abraham, that the nations of the world would be blessed. In Zechariah 8.23, we read these words, a prophecy of New Testament time. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days that shall come to pass, the ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations. Even they shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You see, God is fulfilling his covenant promise to be with his people. That covenant that continues to be repeated throughout the scriptures, that he will be with us. And we're told that true Jews, as Paul says in Romans, are Christians in a new covenant. And he promises that there will be people from all languages and tongues and kindred and tribes And we'll hear and see that God is with us. Remember, Paul gives us that uh, illustration uh, in 1 Corinthians where he talks about what happens when an unbeliever walks in amongst you. And by the preaching of the word and the work of the spirit comes to faith. He'll bow down and say, indeed, God was among you. God is among you. I've come into God's very Presence, And so, we shouldn't expect to have an unhealthy church be fruitful in missionary endeavor. You see, in, in, in warfare, in taking ground in whatever kind of factor, we've, even farming, once you've redeemed the land, once you've fostered it, and it's fruitful. Once you've taken a certain property, you can't neglect it to go extend elsewhere and leave what you've gained empty and ill-prepared, right? So it's a healthy church that produces more healthy churches in home missions as well as in foreign missions. And so we have to start with ourselves. We have to be asking God to continue to forgive us our sins, to bless us, to give us all the promises. We have to lay hold of the promises by faith. Continue to pray them for ourselves as a congregation, as a presbytery, as a denomination. And then we have to continue to beg, to plead with God, to be present with us. That we might be fruitful. So first, a prayer for the prosperity of the church in verse 1. Then in verses 2 through 5, we have a prayer for the extension of... Of the church, church must remain healthy itself. But there are plenty, plenty of territory where God's word has not been proclaimed. Just in the little nation that God has been pleased to allow me to work in, there are five million people there. There are two million that would claim they're Christians, but we know by the way they live that that must not be so. And then we know there's two million people in that nation who are still in what's called African traditional religions. And many of them have heard the gospel at some point, but don't have an evangelical church in their village. They may have had a missionary come and play a video. They may have somebody come every, every year and proclaim the gospel, but they don't have a church in their, in their village. And then there's about half a million people, most of them made up of the million Muslims, who probably have never heard the gospel, have never come under the sound of the gospel. And this is in an African nation where the gospel is pretty prevalent. There are many other nations, right? And then just think about China and other places where there's so many that have never heard the gospel. (laughs) So we should pray for the extension of the gospel, even in our own communities, in our own families, but throughout the world. What does that look like? Here we have a summary prayer and a song that we can pray. That thy way may be known upon the earth by saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy... For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations among the earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. So here this prayer for the extension of God's kingdom is threefold. It's first a prayer that divine doctrine would be proclaimed amongst the nations. Secondly, It's a prayer that divine worship would be established amongst the nations. And thirdly, it's that divine government would be established amongst the nations. Have you ever heard that we as Presbyterians are Presbyterian in doctrine, worship, and government? It's interesting that when the gospel goes forth and we see the extension of the church, this is the way the church should seek to extend. If this is what we're to pray, is this not what we're to seek to do? So let's look at each of these three prongs. First, the divine doctrine, or the gospel, and we could even say the law and the gospel, might be proclaimed amongst the nations. Verse 2, "...that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations." ...thy way. John Calvin says this refers to his covenant. Many suggest it refers to the covenant law at Mount Sinai. Not the whole Mosaic law, but the moral Mosaic law. That law that was written by the finger of God on two tablets... ...to indicate that it remains... It is not a temporary law. We pray that God's moral code might be known among the nations. Do you think that would be good for the nations if they kept God's moral code? Do you think it would be good for our nation? Right? Righteousness exalteth a nation. Why is our nation slipping more and more Because it's lack of keeping God's moral code. It is the law of liberty. And it's interesting here that it begins there and then goes to the gospel, the saving health or the salvation of God. I think what the psalmist is doing is he's actually talking about the law of God in its first use, which is to convict us of our sin. Paul speaks of that use in Romans 3.20 where he says it's by the knowledge, or it's by the law that comes the knowledge of sin. If we didn't know what was right, we wouldn't know we were doing wrong. And so we have to preach the law with the gospel. You never preach just the law, not works righteousness, but we have to preach God's holiness and his, the transcript of his holiness. How those created in his image ought to live. How he's directed us to live. And then we desire to see the saving health amongst the nations or salvation. Remember Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. And this is life eternal. That you might exist forever. Is that what it says? No, this is life eternal, that you may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. See, eternal life is not so much about quantitative existence. It's about a quality of life that's ours now. It's not something that we await for in the future. It's ours at present. We know God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the Father because the Father and the Son have sent His Spirit to work in us. To embrace the Son that's been presented to us in His Word. And it's through the Son that we come unto the Father. And have communion with all three persons of the Godhead. So our first prayer is that the gospel in its purity, would go forth unto the nations. But I'm sorry to say that there are quite a lot of Christian missions that have taken the gospel to the nations, but have stopped there. They haven't necessarily been engaged in planting of churches unto worship and unto Godly behavior and rule and government. Here in this psalm, we're told to pray for two more prongs in our mission endeavors. Not just that the gospel goes forth and men, women, and children come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we're also desirous to see them established in worship. Look at verses 3, 4a, and 5. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy... Oh, excuse me, I should have read three. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then 4a. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And then again in 5. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. If any of the three prongs of the Great Commission are emphasized in this psalm, it's worship. It's worship. Why might that be? It is because worship is the motive, ought to be the motive, and the goal of missions. The fact that we worship God is what drives us to desire others to worship him, to know him as we do. To bow down before him and sing for joy like we do. So it's the motive and the goal of missions. Listen to John Piper in Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. See, that's a little bit different thinking than most evangelicals. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. He goes on to say, when this age is over, and countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. We go to the nations with the gospel because the nations worship idols, vain things, things that don't profit. They worship things, and Paul's even pleased to say, ...that they worship demons. They're heading straight to hell. Is that a motive? Yes. But another motive is... ...that they're not worshiping the true God... ...their creator. And so, we are to pray... ...that the gospel would go to the nations... ...and that worshiping communities... ...would be established... ...amongst the nations... Think of Revelation 14, 6 and 7. There John sees this vision. And remember, the book of Revelation is a picture book. It's visions that the Apostle John saw that he tries to put in writing. And he tries to put in writing uh, from a Hebraic temple kind of perspective. Right, He's seen in the temple a pattern of heaven. Now he sees pictures of heaven and he's having to write them down in words. But in this passage, he's not speaking so much of the temple of God. He says, "...I saw another angel or messenger fly from the midst of heaven... ...having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, here's the everlasting gospel, that this angel messenger is going to speak. Fear God, and give glory to him. It's not what most evangelicals would say. They would think that the angel is going to say, let Jesus into your heart. But that's not what it says. It says, fear God and give glory to him. Well, how do you do that? Obviously, through accepting the way of salvation that God has ordained through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not so much letting him in, but kissing him, as we have in Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And that kiss is not just a kiss of love, it's primarily a kiss of submission. In that psalm, it's bowing the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Recognizing that we're not in control, the world doesn't revolve around us. That it's Him. It's the one that the Father has delegated all authority in heaven and earth. He rules and reigns. And He calls us to humble submission to Him in His way. So we had to pray that the gospel would go forth, that worshiping communities would be established, and lastly, that divine government would be established, we're even told, in verse 4b. For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. You see, God's people are going to sing for joy because they have, their sins have been forgiven. God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, has been imputed to them. They've been adopted as children into the kingdom, into the family of God. God's begun a good work in them, as he has with us. We sing for joy at that in worship. We also sing that he rules over and reigns us. He protects us. He keeps us. The good work he's begun in us, he's promised that it would come to fruition at the day of Christ. So here it says that God will judge the people righteously. You see a lot of judgment that's righteous at present in our nation? It's never been pure, but it's certainly been better than it's been. I have a lot of people crying for social justice. And then when you ask them what it means, you find out it doesn't mean the same thing that you think it means... When you understand what justice scripturally means. God's going to judge, but he's going to judge righteously. He's not making the rules up as he goes. He's going to rule appropriately. With mercy and justice, righteously. And govern the nations. He's a judge, but he's also the administrator of the church. Is there such thing as church discipline in the church? Has God ordained that he is pleased to spank us, his children? Paul says he is in Hebrews, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. Sometimes he does it through the leaders in the church. Sometimes he does it directly, sometimes indirectly through those that he's placed in authority over us. Sometimes we fail to appreciate that that discipline is there, whether it's what I would call preventive discipline or corrective discipline. But here we're told to pray that mission churches that are established would be worshiping assemblies who follow God's rules and have rulers over them and are guiding them administratively and even judicially at times. Because the church of the living God is a it's the pillar and ground of the truth. It is as a city set on a hill. And when God's church is governed appropriately with compassion and mercy, but righteously we shouldn't be surprised that it'll have an influence in the civil sphere. Now, we recognize that the church and the state are two different institutions that God has established. Don't misunderstand me. But God has said that the church is to speak to individuals, but also to kings and rulers and authorities. We're to remind kings and rulers and authorities and presidents and House of Representatives and Congress, what God has said he's pleased with and what he's displeased with. And when solid Christians infiltrate through the election process in free nations, governmental positions, they can have even a greater leviting effect. And we've seen that in missions in days gone by. Certainly we saw it uh, in the founding and establishment of our country. So we should praise God for our great salvation, for His care and government over us. And then lastly, we've had a prayer for the spiritual health of the church in verse 1, a prayer, a threefold prayer for the extension of the church in verses 2 through 5, And then here in verses 6 through 7, we actually have a prophecy of the extension of the church. (laughs) In the King James, it reads thus, Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now, whatever translation you have, in the King James, the word then is italicized, the first word of verse 6. Probably in your uh, verses or your versions may not have that. But in the King James Version, when you have an italicized word, what it tells you is it's not there in the original. The translators are trying to figure out what, what it means. They're trying to add some English words so we can grasp it. But... The tense of this verb is unique in the Hebrew. It's a past tense, but there's a certain Hebrew past tense that is actually prophetic. It's it's a past tense that says it didn't really happen yet, it's but it's absolutely certain in the future, so it's placed in the past. It's as good as done, in other words. It's as good as done. It's going to happen. That's the use of this verb. What's going to happen? There's going to be a greater harvest. Then shall the earth yield her increase. In other words, more conversions. Spiritual blessing. There's going to be a greater blessing. And God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. He's repeating it for emphasis. Our own God. Not the heathen false gods. Our own God. He'll bless us. Spurgeon could say of this verse, the prayer of the first verse is the song of the last. The psalmist has prayed for blessing. And now he's given the encouragement, we're given the encouragement, God will bless his church. You remember in Romans 11, verses 12 and 15, Paul compares the blessing of God when the Jewish people were broken off of the olive tree with the blessing that yet awaits when he engrafts ethnic Israelites back into the church. He says, you think it's been good in the past? There's another blessing to come. I just want to tell you people, as I read the Bible, I don't think it's time to polish the brass on a sinking ship. Christ has said that his church will prevail against the gates of Hades. We're on the offensive. He's promised the victory to his church. We just have to do our duty we have to we have to be patient and follow his direction in days of small things there are days of small things in the history of the church but the faithful have to remain faithful until the blessing comes we see in isaiah actually a picture of those that were the beginners the pioneers that rebuilt the walls, that rebuilt the paths to dwell in when cities had been destroyed and when people came back. And we're told in Isaiah 60 uh, that there will be those in the future that will say, thank God for our forefathers. Those guys and girls, those young men and young women, elderly men and elderly women who continue to be faithful and trod the paths, as Solomon speaks of in the Song of Solomon, of the sheep. They stayed in the sheep's paths. They didn't go off to the bypass. They didn't make it up. Here we see true numerical growth in the church comes through the prayer of God's people. For their own spiritual welfare, their own local congregations, and the extension of of the gospel, not just through preaching, but the establishment of worshiping communities that are governed under the lordship of Christ, under his under shepherds. Men called to that task, men qualified to the task according to the scriptural requirements. When they do, there'll be a great harvest, a great blessing, and then we're told in the last phrase of chapter, of verse 7, there'll be more worship. More conversions, more blessings, and more worship. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. In other words, worship him corporately, privately, in families, and I believe even we could say we are called to worship him generically, as Paul says in Romans 12, that we're to worship him in all of our lives. Our corporate worship is to be the out, is to flow out into all of our lives as we worship God and sing His praises for the great salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. May we indeed be blessed today and may this congregation be blessed in the coming year and may we see God's kingdom extended spiritually and numerically in the coming days. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it has reached even us. We thank you that it's come in power. Through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have been pleased. To make us worshipers of you. That you have drawn us effectually. Savingly. To the Savior. You've been pleased through your law. Through your commandments to help us to grasp our sinfulness, our wickedness in the light of your holiness. But we thank you that you have not left us there, but you've given us grace to see your beauty in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've enabled us to embrace him as he is indeed a prophet, a priest, and a king. We thank you for this great salvation that's become ours through him. We thank you for the gifts, the blessings of adoption, of justification, of sanctification, of our continual preservation and our ultimate glorification in body and in soul at the return of your Son. We look forward to that day and we ask that you would hasten today. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is our cry. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.